The whole question <clears throat> that I think um, all of us has to consider in life is the question, what is eternal life? And a big part of that, Jesus comes in John 17, and he actually gives us one of those little answers that, that could be so easily missed. Jesus comes and he answers this big question, what is eternal life? And he doesn't answer it in terms of length or everything that we sometimes think eternal life is that. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you. Just think about that this, mo this moment, that when Jesus had the opportunity to define eternal life, the way that he defined eternal life is God, eternal life is the fact that they can know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, one of our vision mo movements, the first vision movement starts at knowing God. And I think sometimes in our, in our oversimplistic culture, we sort of reduce the concept of knowing God as just, well, I raised my hand somewhere and I said yes to Jesus. But just think about this. What does it mean to know the unknowable one? <laughs> the one that chose to reveal himself throughout history. But to this point, everything that he has revealed doesn't even scratch the surface of who he actually is. See, in our culture, we've got this little trap that we sort of miss the understanding of knowing God and knowing about God. We live in an information-driven society that if you've read a book or if you've exposed yourself to some info, you sort of think, I know something about that. That equals I know it. But just put yourself in that conversation where Jesus was preparing to pray for, for us. And ask yourself, what do you think Jesus had in mind when he said eternal life is about knowing God? Not just knowing about God, knowing God. See, three key words, the word eternal, actually relates to the quality of life and not just the quantity of life which changes the conversation a bit because when Jesus says that knowing God equals eternal life, it doesn't just say that you'll know God when you live in eternity. It says that when you discover God, you are immediately exposed to this reality of eternal life. It's a quality that's available right now. And I reckon one of the failures of Christianity is the fact, is the fact that we presented a message saying that eternal life happens once you die. Well, that's just not true. That God wants to invite us into this reality of discovering the eternal quality of life. That word life is all about a life that comes and is sustained by God, and it has to be experienced. Both the eternal and the word life, both of those words are words that implies the fact that we have to experience the life. We don't just need to know about it. Now, I'm not against just knowing knowledge. I think the more you know, the more you can grow in your experience. But sometimes the other side's also true. The more you intellectually know, the less you experience. Because the more you convince yourself that experience is just for some of those weird people. And I think a part of this is to understand that the reality of what Jesus is presenting, all three of those words, eternal life and the word knowing, every one of them had to do with your ability to know through experience, not just to know 
through knowledge. So when Jesus says eternal life is about knowing God, I think one of the key things that we've got to grapple with this morning is the understanding that, hey, God, I have a desire to know you, not just about you. Help me strip away the things that has so impacted me, so influenced me, to the point that suddenly my knowing has become very intellectual, very much driven by what I think I know, and not that much about the actual experience about the person of God. It's so interesting that when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, Nicodemus came at night, and there's so much in that story. If you read John 2, the Pharisees came um, and said to Jesus, show us a sign. Because the Pharisees couldn't equate what they were seeing in Jesus as a work of God. But in John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, I can see what you are doing is from God. So Nicodemus actually had the ability to unpack, saying, hey, I'm not with them. I can see that what, what's happening at the moment is a work from God. So there has to be some, some credibility to what Nicodemus is saying. And then Jesus answers him in one of the most profound ways ever. He says, Nicodemus, even if you can consider that what you're seeing in me is from God, you still need to be born again. Now, <laughs> logical thought that happens if you get very analytical about it. Nicodemus' response, what did he say? I'm a grown man. How do I go back? It's just not going to happen. But what if Jesus um, was saying to Nicodemus that before you can see the kingdom of God, you've got to allow so much of what you think about God that that needs to be deconstructed to a base level so that what you see in me could rebuild your thought and your story about who God is? What if true maturity in the kingdom is not having those strong convictions that we've built throughout all the years, but what if true maturity in the kingdom is to go through every season and every phase of life with the ability to say, God, um, help me deduct Help me deconstruct the thoughts in me that sort of aligns to my thoughts about you, but, that it doesn't en but it doesn't enhance my experience of you. Because that, I believe, should be our true aim, that we should have the ability to experience God in every season of our life. I remember a story once where my mother-in-law... Um, asked one of the workers in the garden um, of the, ch uh, we had some workers working the garden and she felt one afternoon that this is going to be a great opportunity to use this moment to evangelize to this, this garden worker. And she called him, she said, sat him down, gave him a meal and she said, Johannes, it's John in English, just Johannes, do you know Jesus? And he looked at her with a strange thought in his eyes and he said, hey madam, I looked for him, I found him, he's gone. Which, that became such a story. I looked for him, I found him, he's gone. And unfortunately, that's a bit of the experience that so many people have if we only present the knowledge about God, but our lives doesn't present the knowledge of God. That when people eat what we're selling, they hear a lot of information, but we're not actually presenting the experience of a God that has the ability to transform lives. Daniel 11.32, um, out of a long conversation, Daniel comes and he makes this interesting comment. He says that people 
who know their God will be strong and they will carry out great exploits. I love this. That people who live in a life-giving relationship with God, they will be strong. They, will, they won't be pulled around in, in everything that happens in life. And, and that's the big story of Daniel. That Daniel had the ability to stand on his convictions. So people who know their God will prove themselves to be strong. And they will carry out great exploits. Sometimes we think that the knowledge of God just takes me deeper. But actually it does both. It takes me to, firm up, it takes me to a point where it firms up my conviction. But also, it establishes my behaviors externally. So this whole thing, just in terms of your life, if you think about your experience at this moment, where are you at when it comes to knowing God? Just answer this in your own mind. Has this last season in your life been a lot more about growing in the knowledge about God? Or can you look back at key moments consistently where the person the wonder, the mystery, the awe, those things that you just can't define has actually so gripped your attention that God has become the focus of everything you are and everything you do. That this experience has shored up your conviction and your actions in everything that you're doing. Because I think one of the things that we need to grapple with is that Jesus introduces us to God. This is a massive statement because, because I think so many times we, we grapple with the fact that we read the Bible through the lens that, that, that only ever introduces us as Jesus, as the Savior of our sins and the Savior of the world. But what if Jesus actually came to introduce us to God? That what we see in Jesus is actually pivotal for us to live in a living relationship with the Father. That what if Jesus was trying to convey more than just a message of sin management. What if Jesus was trying to introduce us to his Father in heaven? So it's thoughts that just ran through my mind this week, that how many times do we read the Bible through the lens of sin management and behavior modification? And we don't read the Bible as this incredible love story that introduces humanity back into the relationship with a Father that loves them completely. See, what if one of the outcomes of Jesus' life on earth was to show us that we could know God? See, eternal life flows out of knowing God. Our outward actions would reveal that we are people that know God. In fact, in John 14, verse 8 to 11, Philip actually comes to Jesus and he said, Lord, Show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Isn't it incredible? <laughs> that people had the ability to look to Christ and still not see what God wanted them to see. Show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still know, don't know who I am? Am I not sufficient in showing you who God actually is? is. Is it possible that we could look at Christ and still not come to the conclusion that Jesus was actually showcasing his heavenly father to us and that his father wanted to be in a relationship with him? Jesus comes and he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you know, and I love this little analogy. 
So Jesus comes and he says, don't you believe, let's say yellow is God and blue is Jesus, don't you know that I am in my Father and my Father is in me? Oops. Get the color coding right. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives where? In me um, and does his work through me. Now we can get very technical about this. Is it yellow? Is it blue? Is it whatever? Here's what Jesus is saying. When you see me, you see perfect union between the Father and me. And that the words I speak and the actions I do are all interconnected. It is as if God the Father is speaking to you. You don't need anything else to see the Father except me. He says, just believe that I, again, that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Critical for us to understand that when Jesus thinks about this, he thinks about a union. He doesn't think about a God that sits in, in heaven and Jesus sits on earth and suddenly we're out there somewhere. He sees inclusion. He sees absolute connection that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And then he sort, sort of gives a disclaimer. He says, or at least believe because of the work that you have seen me do. Which again connects to Daniel 11.32. People who know their God will prove themselves to be strong and carry out great exploits. Basic. So Jesus introduces us to God. But he does something else. He introduces us to ourselves. Which is interesting. Because we're sort of okay with the fact that in Jesus we see God. But Jesus is revealed as the Son of God and the Son of Man. So we see something different in Jesus. He reveals the Father, but He also reveals God, God's intent with us. So we discover so much about God when looking at Jesus. But just the incredible thing, that looking at Jesus, we discover so much about ourselves, about who we are. See, in John 14, verse 15, Jesus continues this conversation. He says, if you love me, obey my commandments. Now, I just want to say that word love and obey directly connected. Sometimes we present a gospel, if you obey me, do my commandments. If you love me, if you have come into an experience of my love, where my love is real, it's not just head knowledge, it's something that has transformed the essence of who you are. If you love me, obey my commandments. It's a natural thing. It's an outflow. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. Now, interesting how easily we want to define that word truth as the typical, he will lead you in the knowledge of good and evil. Because if we define the Holy Spirit that way, we have sort of a mechanism to bring to people's attention that you will know what good and evil is, but most of the times it's more my perception of good and evil. But the reality of that word is he will, um, he will lead you into a new real reality, a new true reality, a reality that's based on a kingdom, 
a life that exists in the Spirit that's way bigger than anything that you've encountered right now. So when the Spirit comes, He'll open up your thoughts, your understanding to the reality of the kingdom. He says the world cannot receive Him because it isn't looking for Him and doesn't recognize Him, but you know Him because He lives with you now and later will be in you. Just think about how Jesus is revealing the promise of the Spirit. The Spirit will come and He will reveal a whole new reality of the kingdom. Don't reduce that to just sin management, behavior modification, that wearing the denims in church is wrong. Because that's how I was confronted as a young kid in church, that if you wear a jean, you're of the devil. Um, sometimes if it sits so tight, it feels like it, but... It's the fact that when the Spirit comes, He'll reveal a whole new reality, a reality based on the kingdom of God, something that's entirely true. He says, soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you will live. And then one of the biggest comments in the New Testament of Christ, He says, when I am raised to life again, Jesus foretells the fact that He will die. He comes and he makes this comment. You will know that, remember, yellow is God, blue is Jesus. He says, you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Just think about this. That suddenly, this whole notion of knowing God takes on a whole different meaning. That the work of the cross, the revelation of what happened when Jesus, was, when Jesus rose from the dead, actually wasn't just, hey, I'm going to give you a ticket into heaven because you confessed my name. I am including you in the Father and in me, that when I look at you and when the Father looks at you, he sees Christ in you and you in Christ. That there is no separation. That when God thinks about you, what God knows about you in Christ is the fact that you are completely included. So what changes if we shift our thoughts from this, we're all living on the planet and Jesus did something a while, or God lives in heaven and Jesus did something a while ago, and one day in heaven we'll see this. Where Jesus comes and he says, no. When I am raised to life, you will know that I am in my Father. And remember what he said earlier, and my Father is in me. And that you are in me. And that I am in you. Imagine what will change if we actually believe that we have been sandwiched in God. Just think about that. That the glory of God is revealed to you, in you, and through you. That this is not just some kind of weird philosophy that will... This is the basis of our life that God invites us to. So it's in this conversation that Jesus enters into John 15, and I'm going to skip through just a few um, comments on this. But John 15, Jesus continues the conversation from John 14. Remember, John's writing a gospel, a storyline. So he's actually building thoughts. Sometimes we separate thoughts. So out of this, 
I'm in my Father, and my Father is in me, and, and we are in God, and God is in us, this whole notion, he comes and he starts off and he says, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine grower. So amazing revelation that everything that will happen to you out of this happens in this union between Jesus and his Father. Now listen to where he locates us. He says, he removes every branch in me, saying that God removes every branch in him that bears no fruit. Now this is one of the most contentious little references in the New Testament, where I think sometimes they confused verse 2 with verse 6, and we'll get to verse 6 in a second. But listen to what the Passion Translation refers to. That word ira actually means that he cares for the branches connected to me by lifting up and propping up the fruitless branches. Since when do we believe in a gospel that those who are in me, that the Father will just throw them away? Just think about that for a moment. Remember where Jesus locates them. That every branch in me that bears no fruit, that word ira is actually translated lift up. So when Jesus starts this conversation, he doesn't start it with, if you, bear no, if you don't bear any fruit, I'm going to throw you away. He starts the conversation with, hey, part of the reality of life is the fact that people fall into situations where they have no fruit at all. But when God steps in and he does his work in us, he does something that looks similar to this. He takes those branches and he actually puts trellises around them and he lifts them up. He secures them to the vine. Because it's them being in the vine that actually strengthens them. So no longer is this a little verse that we use to say, God's going to cut you off if you don't have any fruit in your life. Because I can tell you, that will include all of us in many seasons. Ask yourself the question, are you bearing fruit in this season right now? Or are you going through a bit of a journey? See, there's hope. That those who are in him, even though you go through fruitless seasons, it's a work of God that God comes and he does something for you. He lifts you up. And we like that. We like a God that saves us. And I want to say, if you haven't made the decision yet, it's probably one of the best decisions you can make in your life to say, God, I need you to lift me up. I need you to save me. This is not something I can do for myself. That vine is useless on its own. But as soon as the father steps in, the vine, um, the vine dresser steps in and he lifts him up, that vine receives energy and vitality and growth. But then he makes an interesting comment. He says, in every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. We love pruning. <laughs> because pruning is the moment where God deals with sin in our lives. And yes, I use the big word. Because so I actually think we've got to grapple with the fact that there is a thing like sin. There's actual actions that has consequences. But you know what we've done? We've sort of categorized sin in a little box, meaning a few things that we don't like. But sometimes a better definition of sin is the word self. That it's everything that I do to position me, to benefit me in spite of others. That the whole issue of pruning is what happens when God starts working in self. That it's that place where you've become someone in your, in your personality and in your makeup 
where yes, there's fruit, there's a few things that we can celebrate, but in the way that you live life, it's become so self-centered that your self-centeredness has become sin. And I want to say, in Western society, it is our biggest challenge. We are so self-focused. Every question we ask is, how does it benefit? Me. And I reckon it's time for us to consider that self, selfishness is the biggest sin of our time. That actually looking at me is the one thing that displaces God more than anything else in your, in your life. More than the biggest sin that you could mention. That pride and arrogance in the Bible is one of the key sins referenced in the book of Revelation. Of those key things that looks like a dragon. So just considering the fact that in this year of fruitfulness, that God's going to step into your life in moments where you need to be lifted up. But then there's moments where God's going to step into your life saying, hey, that self is in the position that I need to be at. And there will be no more fruitfulness in your life if you can't see that you have displaced me with you in your life. To come to a place to say, God, help me to displace myself at the center of my life. Now, how do I know that I'm allowing God to do that? It's where the next attitude happens. Where suddenly, if we allow God to work in the sin and the self, abiding becomes something that happens very naturally. Because suddenly you're walking into this experience of knowing God. And because, you, because you've allowed God to wrestle the sin and self away, that notion of control, that notion of I've got, to, I've, got to, I've got to keep pushing is almost arrested. And you allow yourself to sit in wonder and to sit in the majesty of God. That abiding isn't something we do well, even as Christians. Abiding is something that's almost difficult. It's something that, 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 that I've been asking myself, Clinton, how are you going with abiding? And I want to say, out of all of this, I know that God is doing a work in myself because I'm struggling with constant abiding. And it's in this abiding that, that it actually takes fruit from just bearing fruit to a, deep, a deeper abundance of fruit. So the question that I want to ask you is, have you allowed God to deal so with your sin and yourself that abiding is something that actually happens naturally? Or do you feel that the moment that you think about spending time with God that it's forceful? It's almost, oh, how do I do this? Is there so many things in you that it almost creates a discomfort? And that's a great moment. That's not something to be ashamed of. That's a moment to say, God, help me. Help me. Help me deal with me. Because I'm in the way of you in me. And the more I'm in the way of you in me, I can't experience the fullness of you in me and me in you. And then he deals with, just quickly, oh, where did I go now? I don't even know where I am at the moment. <laughs> um, verse 6 there. It says, whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like the branch, uh, and withers such branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. I reckon this is one of those implications. Verse 2, definitely not. But this is one of those implications that we've got to grapple with the fact that as humans, we were made in the image and likeness of God. And being made in the image of, and likeness of God, I think there, there, there are some serious consequences to the choices we make for us and for others. 
And one of the key things that I just want to say, I believe that there's some way, shape, or form of judgment. I haven't been to that side of life yet, so I can't tell you what it is, and I'm not even going to try. Um, I think a lot of people take a stab at it, and I just want to say there is some form of whatever happens. I don't know what it is. But I do believe that there is a consequence to how you engage this life. And one of the things that happens, and I think it's showcased in, in John 15 verse uh, 6, he says that as soon as you separate yourself from him, as soon as you don't allow the reality of the, uh, the fact that God loves you, if you separate yourself from that, it's like a, 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 a reality that we see in so many people's lives that they begin with the process, they separate themselves. After they separate themselves, they isolate themselves. And after they isolate themselves, they alienate themselves. And suddenly the group of people that love them are the group of people that they think they hate them. But it's because they've allowed a process of separation, isolation, alienation. And I think that can happen between us and God. If we keep turning away, remember God is constant, God is there, God loves you, there's nothing that changes from God, but it is possible that if you allow yourself to turn away from Him, that you will allow a separation, that you will allow an isolation, and that you will allow an alienation that could be detrimental to what happens in your eternal life. So in all of this, I want to conclude <laughs> that Jesus comes and He says, the whole reality, and you can read it in uh, John um, 15, verse 7 to 12. He says, you will know that you're abiding well if his joy is complete in you. I don't want to reduce complex things to simplistic things, but I reckon one of the key things that we're missing most in our society today is the reality of an inner joy that's bigger than anything that we can manufacture on our, on our own. That one of the things that so many people struggle with in their mental well-being is the fact that there's just no joy. And part of that is allowing the work of God's Spirit to do a work through the attitudes of sin and the attitudes of self. And to actually invite a work of God to, work a, to do something so deep in you that it will bring you to joy. I can just say what the Word says. But when Jesus says, that all of this, this abiding brings us to a place that you, um, so, that you, um, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It's a massive statement. And it's one of those things that even in my own life I'm saying, God, help me in 2020, in the year of fruitfulness, that I'll allow myself to grapple and to discover you in such a way that your joy will be in me. That I won't chase superficial manifestations of joy, but that I'll allow you to come do something in me that the joy of Christ will be in me and that joy will be complete. Because if that happens, <laughs> um, I think we skip over the barren seasons of life. And that's a word God gave me for this morning. Just to say, just mention that this morning. That some people have been stuck in a barren season for too long. And God wants to release you out of that. Now, the doorway is sin or self. The doorway is the acknowledgement of salvation. But you've got to allow God. You've got to welcome Him in. Worship team can, can come up. The full work 
of this in the year 2020 where we're saying, may this be a year of fruitfulness, is we know that God's done a deep work in our lives when this verse becomes real in our life. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. That because you're in the vine, and because everyone, it's God's desire that everyone will be included in the vine, that at any point in life, if you sever the vine to other people, you break connection. And that's not God's heart. That we know that joy, the fullness of who God is, this experience, uh, the experiential journey that actually transforms the essence of who we are, comes into full flow when we know that God's love flows through me in an unhindered way. Where every person I connect to, everywhere I go, this life manifests the fact that God loves people. And it actually brings us to the place where we need to protect the flow. So three things that I believe that God is going to do for us in this year. Um, Firstly, I believe that some of us are sitting here this morning and you need a God that will lift you up out of where you are at right now. You need to discover what God has done for you. We need to discover what God is doing in us right now. That some of us need to sit here this morning saying, God, I am welcoming your pruning in my life through sin and self right now. And some of us need to come to a place, God, what is it that you want to do through me in 2020? What is it that you want to display? How do you want to display your glory through my life in 2020? Three things that I believe is pivotal for every one of us. Different places. God, the work of Jesus on the cross was an obvious work that you did something for us. That when I look at the cross, I don't see separation between me and God. I see inclusion. So what you did for me includes me. But because the cross was the event that transformed humanity, there's this discovery that because of that, I can welcome you in saying, come and do something in me now. And it starts today. Imagine some of us saying to God, God, I know my selfishness is stopping you in me. I know my sin is stopping your work in me. Everyone else knows it. That's the weird thing about this. Everyone else sees it, but you can't. You just can't see that in your life at this point. And you so want God to do something through you, but he can't do it in you. You're not allowing him to do something pivotal in you first. And may that be the thing that you grapple with in the next week or so. Where are you stopping God in you? Where are you playing God in your life? That stops the fruitfulness, that stops the life, that stops the flow of God working in you to the point that he can't work through you because you've put a full stop in that. Let's close our eyes. Before we go into a time of communion, I actually just want to give people the ability to respond this morning. Just by raising your hand, I'm not going to ask you to stand. But I think it's important for you to actually come to a point to acknowledge it to God, to say, God, I know that either my sin or myself is actually blocking your work in me. And this morning, I just want to say, come and do a work in me to help me progress past me in my life. Don't you want to raise your hand? I just want to pray for you this morning.
Thank you, Lord. There's many hands that are raised, so I just want to ask you just to stay in this moment. You can drop your hand once you've raised it. Can I ask you just to, to think in your thoughts, just the areas that God is highlighting in your life right now, the things that He's bringing to your attention, and just in your mind, just bring them to God as I pray over your life. God, I want to thank you this morning that there are people here that has the courage to acknowledge that you, um, you want to make your love and the knowledge of who you are real to them. But they've displaced you with them in their lives, Lord. So this morning, I want to pray, Lord, that you would firstly just show them the areas of sin and self where they have displaced you. Lord, help them see some of the blind spots that, that are sometimes so visible to other people, but invisible to us. Help them see the areas, Lord, that you want to prune, not to cut fruit away, but to, to, to increase the quality of fruit in them to the point, Lord, that 2020 would be a year of life, of joy, of fruitfulness, that 2020 will not be a year of stuckness, of, of, of barrenness, of dryness, of withering away, but that this would be a year that they break through the habits of sin and they break through the habits of self, entering into the fullness of what you have for us in Christ. So Lord, I just pray your presence in a way that transforms us over every one of our lives, Lord. Help us be aware of that. Help us to come to a knowledge of that. And help us to open our hearts fully to your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.